0: Today's episode is sponsored by Magoosh MCAT Prep. Magouche offers online MCAT prep that's actually affordable and guaranteed to improve your score. For less than $200, you can get a full year of Magoosh, which includes hundreds of content review videos, three full-length practice tests, helpful email support from their team of MCAT tutors, and a 10-point score improvement guaranteed or your money back. Magoosh is offering 20% off for listeners of this podcast. Go to Magoosh.com slash Jake, that's Magoosh, M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com slash Jake, and you will save 20%. All right, guys, welcome back to Destination Healthcare, the podcast to learn about your favorite healthcare professionals. They're going to be sharing with you their advice, their insight, and the lessons that they've learned along their journey. Today's guest is Dr. Naheed Dasani. He is a Toronto based palliative care doctor who cares for the homeless and vulnerably housed individuals with dignity and compassion. He is the founder of Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless, aka PEACH, a program that provides community based hospice palliative care to society's most vulnerable individuals, regardless of their housing status. And he is a human rights activist who has been awarded the Meritus Service Cross for Humanitarianism from the Governor General of Canada. As well as a humanitarian award from the Canadian Society of Palliative Care and Physicians. Palliative care physicians. He is also a TEDx speaker and has built a large following on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. Welcome to the podcast, Nahid. Thanks for having me on, Jake. Of course. So, Nahid, as I mentioned, is a palliative care doctor, which is not the most common specialty. And before we ask, you know, about why you decided to become a palliative care doc, I'd love to learn a little bit about your background where you grew up and what your childhood was like.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada, but I'm the child of two refugees who came to Canada in the 1970s from a little country called Uganda in Africa um, due to uh, turmoil, war and crisis. If anybody's ever seen The Last King of Scotland, it tells a story of Idi Amin, a dictator who came to power. And there was a uh, an event in history called the Ugandan Asian Expulsion. And my parents came to Canada with nothing. They were literally refugees and built up a life here. And that meant growing up in a house where um money was short we grew up in an area of toronto um uh, where poverty was common and um and life wasn't always easy but uh it meant that social justice and um using education as a springboard to enact social change in our communities was always important humanitarianism was important and it embroiled a spirit of understanding of the struggle um and what that means in our communities and i I hope that uh uh, i've been able to um enlighten that in, in the work that that I do and that we do with our teams every day.
0: Absolutely. So what was your experience like in college? And, you know, where you are now, you're a palliative care doctor. Uh, you work with the homeless population. I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but were you eight years old saying I'm going to be a palliative care doctor? Kind of, could you walk us through what your college experience was like and when you decided that you were going to become a physician? And then we'll get to later on why you decided palliative care.
1: Yeah, totally. It's not the most natural course or trajectory for for sure. They always say that palliative care, you don't find palliative care, palliative care finds you. Hmm. Um, And so for me going through school, um, you know, given um, that, uh, you know, the upbringing I had, um, things weren't always so easy. And my parents were really kind. They didn't put a lot of pressure on me in the sense that it was a big deal to just go to university and graduate. Um, But because of the way that I was um, inspired by my parents and their upbringing as refugees and Canada, seeing them struggle job to job, working multiple jobs, supporting their families. Um, I always was inspired by how um, they cared about their communities despite the situations that they were in. And I always wanted to um, have that level of, of, of contribution from a humanitarian spirit. It started in like journalism, then it was law, then it was engineering. Then I kind of found out about this whole, um, the spirit within medicine of, of, of health workers, um, physicians, nurses, a. Amazing health providers who were working here in our in our continent, in the states, in Canada, and, and also around the world with organizations like Oxfam, Doctors Without Borders, working in war torn areas. Uh, reading about people like Samantha Nutt, Richard Heinzel, James Rubinsky, or Paul Farmer of Partners in Health, and I started to realize um, that there was a great power that medicine. It, yes, it's it's interesting and there's a science to it, but it's a tool to to, to for the betterment of our society. Um, and that really. really- inspired me. Um, and so it ended up being medicine in the end. Um, and that was the path.
0: I love that. That's a cool journey. So along the way, you know, many people that may be listening, uh, want to be a physician, want to be in your shoes. Uh, and in the States, medical school is very competitive as is Canada to get in is, I I mean, just off the top of my head, I believe it's 55,000 apply every year and 26,000 get accepted. And those are the people that make it that far. Right. So my question for you is, uh, did you have any roadblocks along the way to becoming, to getting into medical school and becoming a physician?
1: You know, I often talk to the students that, that uh, ask me for advice and what my thoughts are on this topic. And I say, it's all about finding your chi or your inner energy and what you're all about. You know, Jake, when I went through med school, I thought something was wrong with me, man. Like I hit the, the kidney block and I'm like, man, this does not excite me at all. I do not want to be a nephrologist. I'd hit like the neurology block, and I'm like, spinal cord and brain is cool, but it's just not my jam. And as I went through different parts of the journey, I started to realize it may not be a body part or a particular technique in medicine like surgery that 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 um that hits me. But what hit me was the human experience, the human story, um, the struggle that. That people go through and the inspiration that the people that we care for can provide for us. And and I have to say that um, I don't think that I'm an expert in in providing healthcare to people. I think the people I care for, my patients are my experts. And through um, caring for people who are often down and out, living on the margins, experiencing poverty, homelessness, mental illness, for example, I'm inspired every day. And and finally, through palliative care, I've um, witnessed such incredible human um, courage um, that inspires me further every day and so I found that and I rode that to the end and I guess here we are
0: that's so cool I really relate to that too because so many times in medical school I'd be in the I think we're really hitting the kidney hard here I'm sorry for any nephrologist <laughs> as but I would be in I the feel kidney. bad for the kidney fans <laughs> yeah I'd just be like the loop of Henley yeah this right? really is not why I work my butt off to get here I'm just not interested in this but thank god I found psychiatry and I became passionate about that um, right. I, I totally relate to that. So, so for, if you're listening to this and you feel maybe you're in medical school or you're pre-med and you are drowning in organic chemistry and physics or uh, something that you may say, do I really like this? Nahid is a perfect example of, you know, he wasn't passionate about the kidney, but he found his passion. Um, I guess that leads me to my next question. You know, you completed uh, a residency in family med. What uh, were you? Did you find about family med? Why did you pursue that specialty before well, palliative?
1: No, I think I think it's a really great point, and 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 part of the reason that, that family medicine really spoke to me was because of the holistic nature of being able to care for someone, um, whether it's mental health, whether it's physical health, whether it's a, a a family conflict issue, or just general counseling and support of people through being well and healthy. I think family medicine just really offered that cradle to grave kind of care and um, brought me onto the forefront of being a specialist in generalism. And 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 that's the thing that sometimes I think people forget about family medicine is that you are a specialist, you're a specialist in helping people through generalism. Um, and so um, that really lended well also to advocacy. And I think in family medicine, because by definition you are a resource to the population you serve, your community, your neighborhood, wherever you live, um, you start to get into the grassroots. It's a grassroots field. You start to understand the struggle uh, within your community, and you connect with your community in a very unique and special way. And that sung to me. That spoke to me. That was the narrative that drove me um, more than specific areas, uh, other specific areas of medicine, which are also really important. But this is what really spoke to me.
0: Very cool. So in family med, did you know when you were in your family med residency, did you know that you wanted to go into palliative Or when did you decide when, what kind of experience did you have that made you decide I'm actually going to pursue, I'm going to finish my family medicine residency and then do a fellowship, correct, in palliative?
1: That's right. Yeah. So uh, along the way, I started to get experience in in dealing with uh, providing healthcare to people with serious illnesses. Um, And I started to learn about palliative care. And uh, I started to realize that palliative care is a specialty which aims to support people's quality of life holistically um, from diagnosis all the way until end of life and including bereavement. And it was the one area of healthcare where I started to realize um, that we're really listening to the patients we serve, and I know it's important to check people's blood pressures and their blood work and and you know CT scans, and and I know those things are important. But in palliative care, those things can be important too. But it's really always driven around what the person wants. Are they experiencing pain? Are they experiencing shortness of breath? Are they experiencing distress? And it's one of the most patient-centered, person-centered fields I have ever witnessed. And many of the learners who rotate from other disciplines and spend time with us are just blown away at how much. Yes, we talk, but we listen more, and we listen first, and we listen aggressively. And I think those were just some of the things that spoke to me again, speaking to my inner being, my inner energy, my chi, um, and and drove me to a career in palliative care and palliative medicine.
0: I love that. I actually had a um, rotation. I was in internal medicine, but um, in my third year of medical school, I spent a week with a palliative care physician, um, basically, you know, shadowing her, uh, getting to see the conversations that occurred. Now, this was inpatient. So a lot of these people, uh, were on, you know, the last couple of weeks of their life. And I will always remember this one encounter I had, uh, I was sent into the room, I think alone and, um, asked the individual, um, is, is there anything I could do for you? And they had said, and they maybe had a week left to live. And they said, mm-hmm. um, can I eat cheese? <laughs> And I was like, I was so taken aback. Like, what, yeah. what do you mean? Uh, I was like, I can, I, I think so. You know, I, I think you can eat cheese. And um, they said, well, you know, I recently found that I really like cheese, but I, I, you know, I lived like 80 years without experimenting with all the different types of cheeses out there. I'd love to try a bunch of the cheeses. And I was just so like, I had to step out in the hallway and be like, wow, at the end of this person's life, they, they are, you know, just, they just want to try some cheese and that like made this palliative care to me was this feel that was you know the hurt that I experienced every day. It was like I right. you know, I bring this hurt home with me. I can't do this. But then I I saw that and I was like that. It just was a very powerful experience about cheese. Of all yeah
1: things. yeah and it and it's wild because the smallest things. Um, can be so moving and inspiring for people because what it all boils down to is that experience as as sad as it sounds we're all going to at some day experience that and what my experience has been is when when it boils down to it people are not focused on their jobs they're not focused on how much money they made people's focus um, tends to be around the people around them some of the experiences uh, that they that they had and how people made them feel and how they made people feel, um, and cheese, cheese, music, um, uh, movies, um, singing, anything to do with any legacy work like that, um, can be really powerful for people.
0: So I'm sure you've, you you know, you've been on people's deathbeds. You've really heard some of people's last words, just like you said there, that those are the type of things that people talk about in the end. You've, you've definitely noticed a theme that it's, um, less about, money and career and more about family uh fun yeah wow yeah that's pretty powerful absolutely
1: absolutely and i think i think when it when it boils down to it um status um is not as important to people at the end of life. What people at the end of life tend to talk about is the, com- the community that they were, they were in, the community they were part of, um, the connectedness that they feel to the people around them. And um, that's why I find courage and inspiration in the work that I do. It gives meaning not just in the clinical work that I do, but the actual life I live and I derive around it. Um, and there are lessons there. So if anybody's ever having the opportunity to do work in and around hospice palliative care, whether it's, you know, seeing people right at the time of diagnosis early on, or even towards the end of life, I encourage everyone to obtain those opportunities and experiences because there's so much to learn more than just medicine, but actually about life.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow, that's incredible. So I got the chance to watch Nahid's TEDx talk, which by the way, guys, if you haven't seen this, go to Google and and search for this. It's called a or What's a Life Worth? It's called What's a Life Worth. It's about maybe what, 16 minutes? That's right. Yeah. It is a must watch. I'm going to link it when I post this. I'm going to link it in the bio. So you're going to be able to click it from there. Um, And in this TEDx, Nahid discusses an encounter he has with a patient named Terry. If you feel comfortable, Nahid, would you be able to walk us through that experience and the effect that it had on you?
1: For sure. First of all, thanks for taking the time to watch that. Um, in 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 the in the talk in the TEDx talk, I have the opportunity to really um, pour my heart out and explain how I ended up where I am, doing the work I am. When I was working as a first year resident, uh, providing healthcare in one of Toronto um, Toronto's uh, large homeless shelters, um, when a man uh, in his early thirties presented to our shelter, um, he had a longstanding diagnosis of mental illness. He had schizophrenia. He uh, he had a substance use disorder um, and had frequented many of the drop-ins in downtown Toronto. And he presented in pain crisis at our shelter on that day. And as he was shaking, he was writhing into a ball, he was curled up. And as I examined his mouth, I could start to see what was wrong with him. And as I be- began to talk to him that day and I went on the computer and I searched out his records, I could see that he was diagnosed with this head and neck cancer like over a year before in one of our cancer centers downtown. But because of his mental health and his inability to have supports around him. He wasn't able to organize to to follow up. So as he started to experience pain, uh, sorry, sorry, as time went on, he started to experience pain. Um, uh, He was also, by the way, embarrassed at how he looked. So he didn't want to follow up uh, to medical practitioners around his care. And as his pain began to increase, he went hospital to hospital, ER to ER, walk-in clinic to walk-in clinic, seeking the kind of pain control that anybody should have access to um, in this country, in, in this continent, in this world, right, for this kind of thing. And Terry was denied, his name was Terry, Terry was denied access to pain medicines that would improve his quality of life. And um, maybe it was like because he, the way he looked, maybe it was the words he said, maybe it was how he smelled, maybe it was the words he didn't say. But there was a sense that he wasn't getting access to quality of life care, like palliative care, that he needed to make his quality of life better. And so I built a rapport with him. He promised me he was going to you know, have some pain meds and show up to the, to the, to the cancer hospital. We were going to use some radiation to shrink the tumor. It was all going to be like this pathway to get better. And I got to the shelter the next day because I was really excited about this bond I developed with this gentleman. And I couldn't find him anywhere in the morning when I went in, in his room or the cafeteria. And one of his friends called from down the hall and said, hey, doc, are you looking for Terry? And I said, yeah. And he said, you didn't hear? Terry died last night. Terry's body was found um, in the early hours of the morning by a commuter on her way to work. It was too little, too late. He had overdosed on a combination of alcohol and street drugs. He had killed himself because of the pain um, control that he wished he had had, basically. So this was a really traumatic event for me and a a real life-changing event. Um, um, I had to take some time off. Uh, my residency program i'm thankful to an amazing amazing residency program director who gave me the opportunity and dove deep into this issue and started to realize that palliative care access is an issue that happens in toronto it happens in winnipeg it happens in vancouver it happens in new york it happens in miami it happens in, it's all around the world and this is actually a global health issue and i've spent the last six years dedicated on this very specific niche and field
0: wow That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing. And um, it it obviously had a very powerful impact on your career um, and sort of directed you in the path that you are on now, uh, where you speak about this kind of stuff. And I would be interested if you could tell us more about the palliative education and care for the homeless program that you enacted, um, which uh, it sounds like Terry's Uh, your encounter with Terry was sort of the catalyst uh, along with your time off and the research to uh, open up this program.
1: Absolutely. Terry's story was an inspiration to the work we do today. But um, just to say that Terry's story is not unique. In fact, um, it's important to recognize that the homeless population in Canada and United States, Europe and Australia is one of the sickest subpopulations, if not the sickest subpopulations um, in in these areas in the world. Um, This population is 28 times as likely to get hepatitis C, five times more likely to have heart disease, four times more likely to have cancer. Um, They are When they get sick, they are eight times more likely to present to the emergency department and four times more likely to be admitted to hospital. Jake, do you know what the average life expectancy is for someone who experiences homelessness in Canada or the United States? I'm not sure. So the average life expectancy for someone who's homeless is 34 to 47 years old. I'm going to say that again, 34 to 47 years old. And according to Wikipedia this morning, the average life expectancy for housed people was 77 to 82 years. So wow. literally homelessness cuts your lifespan by about half. And so, you know, it's it's not how we often think, but many of us in in the healthcare for homeless world, and particularly those who work in palliative care, are recognizing that homelessness is a terminal diagnosis. It's a palliative care diagnosis of the social determinants of health. And that inspired us to start this program in Toronto called the Peach Program, a mobile street and shelter based program that provides palliative care uh, to Toronto's homeless, whether they're on the streets, in shelters, in rooming houses, in boarding houses, so that no person falls through the cracks. It meets people where they're at around mental health, around substance use, around physically actually providing health care to people experiencing homelessness so that people um, get the kind of support they need. And what we're really happy about is that this has kind of started a movement as well. We now have cousin and sister programs in Calgary, Alberta, Victoria. British Columbia, Brampton, Ontario, Seattle, um, Brisbane, Australia, Absolutely. London, England, and the community and the movement is 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 um is pushing along uh, to address this really important issue.
0: That's so cool that this model of care is now being enacted in these different cities. Uh, I when I watched your TEDx, I took a couple notes on some really incredible statistics uh, from the Peach Program. So I have here that sixty four percent of Peach patients never needed to go to the ER or the hospital 80% actually died where they wanted to and got their final wishes 85% reconnected with friends or family and many of these cases they had not spoken to those individuals in decades that is incredible um I'm wondering you know how you feel about that and if you could just tell us you know if that's rewarding uh Incredible stats. Hats off to you.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, like, first of all, what those statistics show is that the, it, that this this intervention, this program, it works. And whenever you're starting something new, you need to have data to derive answers. And there you go. Like, whether it pertains to something around physical and medical care, access to hospitals, or like that emotional and psychosocial piece, um, it's addressing all those domains. So it, so it works. The second is it speaks to the nature of the fact that sometimes when we build healthcare Systems and this is so different on based on jurisdiction to jurisdiction to where you live. We sometimes build solution and solutions in silos, and sometimes. Um, silos allowed us to build up and be really good at this very specific area, but some of society's most difficult problems like healthcare for people experiencing homelessness are not siloed problems. They are problems that cross sectors. They have, have to do with healthcare. They have to do with social services. They have to do with, you know, how shelters are run, how cities and, and regions and counties are run, those kinds of things as well. So it speaks to the intersectoral nature of this work. And, um, finally, what it speaks to is, um, the fact that, um, any any answer to, 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 to providing healthcare for people experiencing homelessness or people who have experienced trauma in this world needs to be driven by the people themselves and one of the things that we're really proud of at the Peach Program is we we have peer workers who work on our program like actually people who have been hired to our program because they experienced homelessness and they actually work on our team and so we learn a lot because um, I'm a doctor and I carry privilege into every room I go into but when I have a peer worker, someone who we hired because they've, they've actually experienced homelessness, they're able to bridge that gap and connect with people in a way that's very unique, for example. So, um, I think that's what this data shows and we have a lot more to learn, but I'm excited to, to, to carry all that forward as well.
0: That's, that's so cool that you guys, what, what did you, what did you call them? Care workers? Peer, peer support workers. Peer support workers. That is so cool that you guys incorporate them into the model. Um, uh, because I feel like there is always a, um, lack of, of, um, relatability between physician and patient, especially when that patient is, is homeless. Like you said, you walk into every room with privilege, having that connection there. So cool. Um, so I I really like that model. Thank you. Um, I have a question for you about burnout because, and while we're on this subject, we can also hit, um, sort of just the general biases that many people have, including myself when I think of palliative care. Um, so let's discuss this and then we'll discuss burnout. My biases are palliative care is, is strictly end of life, you yeah. know, uh, uh, even, and I've worked in palliative care, so I, I would love for you to dispel some of those biases for myself and any of the listeners, uh, because you had mentioned that it's not just end of life, it's from the diagnosis. You got and it, While we're on it, hospice versus palliative care, because what's yeah. the yeah, for sure. I'm so glad you're
1: you're talking about this, and we need to be talking about this a lot more. Um, you know, just just for the listeners out there, that palli- just to clarify, palliative care is is by definition an area of healthcare that aims to provide quality of life supports for anyone dealing with a serious life limiting illness. According to our national bodies, um, in here in Canada and the United States, we define palliative care as anybody who needs help and support all the way from diagnosis of a serious illness. Illness, all the way up until end of life. A serious illness can be defined as someone who's experiencing kidney failure, um, you know, COPD, ALS, stroke, dementia, and cancer. Um, in in the past, there's been a lot of focus around end-of-life care, but palliative care actually in, in Latin means to cloak, to comfort. And That's all it means. It does not mean end-of-life care. Um, and, and, and in palliative care, we have this really unique opportunity to address pain and symptoms. We support people through psychosocial and emotional supports. There's a domain of palliative care that focuses on spiritual supports. We also support people with Goals of care. So when people come into hospital, for example, um, and have serious illnesses, we're able to work with them around their goals to say, "Well, actually, yeah, like you know, I wouldn't want CPR. I'm 92. You know, I have a lot of medical illnesses. I don't want to be on a ventilator, even in amidst a pandemic like COVID, for example." Um, and so. Um, you know, it really spans all those domains. Um, Palliative care is not a place. Sometimes people say, yeah, I'm on the, I have a palliative care bed or the palliative Mm -hmm. care floor. And it's, it's actually a philosophy. It's not a place. It's a philosophy of care that can be provided in an emergency department, on a medical ward, on a surgical ward, in a palliative care ambulatory clinic, in a family medicine clinic, at home or in hospice. Now to answer your your other question um, about the differences between palliative care and hospice, and some of these definitions really Really vary jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and are focused on funding. Um, for example, um, in Canada, we really lump hospice and palliative care by and large together. We actually, we, you know, our conferences are often called hospice palliative care. But in this, in the states, I'm aware that there are some differentiation. So, in in hospice, people generally have less than three to six months of life left. Their goals of care are comfort oriented, so they would not necessarily want um, specific treatments like, for example, in some places, IV fluids or IV antibiotics. And the goals of care are really derived around a pathway towards end of life. Around palliative care, someone could actually have a prognosis of years. I've cared for many people for years, for example. Their goals of care may be much more active. They may want IV fluids or IV antibiotics, for example. Um, and their prognosis could be, could be longer. Um, and so people can, in palliative care, people can still be pursuing treatment. For example, Palliative chemotherapy, but be 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 um supported through a palliative approach to care. At the same time, we're trying we're trying to change our terminology now to talk about palliative care as palliative approaches to care, which mm. you can actually um, overlay with other approaches to care, like treatment, for example. Um, and so, yeah, that that in a nutshell kind of summarizes that discussion.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, obviously, as a palliative care doctor, you have seen many patients pass. Yeah, and. We, you know, burnout is front and center right now, um, obviously, amongst the COVID epidemic. And by the way, guys, we're filming this on May 9th And we are in the midst of uh, the COVID epidemic. So um, burnout is front and center. You are in a field where many of your patients pass. How do you deal with uh, patients passing and coping with burnout?
1: For sure. I mean, I would be uh, remiss to say um, that uh, burnout, loss, um, and grief is not something that's front and center in the field I work in. There are many days when I come home and, and it's, it's tough and it's frustrating and it's sometimes sad. But I also want to say we have a lot of fun in palliative care. It's not all doom and gloom. We laugh, we, we sing, you know, in the midst of crying. And one of the things that we do through the PEACH program is when someone dies in one of our homeless shelters, we descend and we actually hold what's called a healing circle. And for those who are interested, there's a White Coat Black Art CBC radio piece um, on our healing circles. You can Google that and you can learn more about that, where we actually get to debrief the death um, and as a team with all the workers, peers, any other residents who might have been involved in the care. And I find that those kind of sessions really help me heal and grow as an individual and as a person. Um, so, um, you know, it's things like that that can really make a huge difference. Um, but yeah, we all need our own processes around self-care and, and really manage that trauma and grief
0: that is so cool that you guys do those those circles my girlfriend um who is couples matching with me into internal medicine or we were applying for the couples match this upcoming year she had an internal medicine rotation where the physician like she she saw a patient pass one of her first days um in medical in third year of medical school which um it's very hard for anybody, but especially an incoming medical student. And they actually right. did one of those. I'm not sure what they called it. It may have been called something a little bit different, but it was basically a, a group-led meditation about uh, around the patient's bed Uh, And she still talks about that experience and how powerful that was amazing.
1: I mean, we need more of that in healthcare. There's a lot of unrecognized trauma that is happening among um, medical students, residents, health workers, doctors, nurses, our entire community, we need to be working together more to figure that out. And I I worry in the pandemic that we haven't done enough of that. Um, So I know we'll be discussing this more and more.
0: Mm -hmm. All right, so a couple more questions for you. And then we're going to end up here. So Um, you've obviously found your passion. It's very clear your passion shines through Mm -hmm. a lot of us uh, pre meds medical students, uh, or people interested in other healthcare fields have not exactly found their passion yet, right? Uh, They don't know what kind of doctor they want to be or what kind of nurse PA, etc. And they don't know what makes them happy and gets them out of bed and gets them as excited as you are about uh, palliative medicine. What advice do you have for people that are in those shoes? I
1: think there's a real tendency sometimes to want to, um, uh, to follow things that don't speak to your inner spirit and your, and your inner soul. And I think sometimes, I don't know if it's keeping up with the Joneses or if it's like Grey's Anatomy or like what TV tells us is important. And I, and I find that anybody I've ever met in medicine who is living their best life through medicine has followed that inner path and that inner soul and that inner spirit. So don't follow money don't follow you know what you think uh, a certain specialty brings around status um, follow what makes your heart sing and that and that could be a part of the body that really like the lupa henley we're really picking on the lupa <laughs> henley today <laughs> and neurology but it could also be about um, an, an entire you know aspect of a person's life like me around palliative care around giving birth for you know obstetrics it could it could be more around the public health angle it could be around particular populations and what i ask people to do is not have like tunnel vision as you go through your training, be, be open to those experiences because you never know what will hit. You'll never know what will match with you. And, and it'll be the thing that you least expected for sure. I, like me, palliative care, if you would have talked, if, if, when I was at your level, Jake, if someone had said I'd be a palliative care doctor, I'd be like, no way. I, didn't, I, I just like that would never happen. And here we are today, for example. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that's my biggest piece of advice.
0: I feel that because if you would have told me as an incoming first year medical student, you're actually going to pursue psychiatry. <laughs> I would say there's no way. I had crossed yeah. off psych and I had crossed off OBGYN before I walked into med school because of biases that I had. I Went into my psych right. rotation day 4, I was like, I'm I'm in 100% <laughs> oh. There you go. You're a perfect example too. All right, let's end with um social media use in healthcare and TikTok. Um I first saw you on TikTok. I first time I ever saw Naheed was on TikTok. By the way, if you guys don't follow Naheed, he is on active on Twitter, active on TikTok, active on Instagram. Am I missing any social media right there? Those are the big three. Those are the big three. Uh, and he posts real, authentic, vulnerable content, um, less trending dances, more uh, videos that make you think. So he's uh, a must follow. What, uh, what is your opinion on social media and healthcare? Uh, and can you walk us through why you started TikTok, um, and what TikTok has uh, done for you?
1: Well, thank you, Jake. Um, I think one of the things that's really important to, to remember about, uh, being a good clinician, we're always taught in our training. If you want to be a good clinician, you got to keep up to date. You got to modernize. You got to you got to keep ahead of the evolution, and that's true in in medicine and our learnings in medicine. But that's also true in our learnings um, around digital health as well, and also how we um, are supposed to inspire the populations around us. There is a lot of misinformation out there on our social channels, and I think um, there is a duty, there's a moral obligation for Those of us in the medical community to be on these channels and to be putting out information that is correct, that is right, that is with it, and that inspires people. And, and I think there's a lot of great examples, many of the amazing people you're about to have on your, your, your series of IG Lives and your podcast who are doing a fantastic job of that, including yourself actually, Jake. You. And I think it's, it's actually our duty to be out there to be doing this work. From my perspective, um, I started to realize that many of the intersections that I'm working on around people experiencing homelessness, around poverty, and the connections around social factors that impact health i found that like it's it's one thing to be in like a university giving a lecture you know and it's another thing to be dropping a TikTok that breaks down a set a, a topic in 30 seconds and the educational value of that is beyond belief i've been blown away at mm-hmm. the level of engagement of understanding um and i think that you know there's a lot of rules that you got to remember like 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 etiquette, like don't ever put anything out there. You wouldn't say in an elevator, for example, don't, you know, privacy is important. Confidentiality, respect of your colleagues, respect of yourself as an, as a professional, all that's really important. But if you, if you're abiding by that, I think we have a real opportunity as a medical community to be out there and inspiring people and having information that can really lead to better health in the populations we serve. So I'm really grateful to have have met you on the platform and seen all the work that you do and hopefully can keep putting out that content and connecting with the public.
0: I couldn't have said it any better myself. Nahid, that's all the time we have today. Thank Thank you you so much for taking time out of your day to come here. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Jake. Today's episode is sponsored by Magoosh MCAT Prep. Magoosh offers 20% off for listeners of their podcasts. Go to Magoosh.com slash Jake. That's Magoosh, M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com slash Jake, and you will save 20% just by listening. If you made it this far, then hopefully you enjoyed it. If you wouldn't mind, please consider tapping that subscribe button so you'll be the first to know when a new episode is out. Today's episode and every episode is produced by my friend, James Gillespie. Reach out to him for all of your podcast needs by email at james at jamesgillespie.online. The spelling of Gillespie will be in the podcast description.